0: Let's look uh, at Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read to you verses 4, 14, and 15. And this is going to be kind of the launching point for us today. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word today? The Apostle Paul writes this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. that You may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world this is the word of god for the people of god you may be seated all right so the topic today i want to just kind of share a little bit about the election and i want to ask let me just get a little audience participation thing going here, okay? Raise your hand if you are enjoying the chaos, the tension, and the drama of the election season. Can I see a show of hands, all right? We got a few uh, honest people here. Very good. How many of you raise your hands um, if you can't wait for all of this to be over with, all right? <laughs> what a dumb question, right? Um, how about this? Raise your hand if you get nauseated when somebody brings up the subject of politics in a conversation. You just like want to just look, yeah, okay. Uh, How many of you are like me and you're the one who brings it up in conversations? Yeah, that's that's what I do, yeah. Um, How about this? Um, How many of you have watched, you know, all the debates or most all of them? Raise your hand. Okay, very good. How many of you are like, debates? I didn't know there were debates. All right. Like, what rock have you been hiding under, you know? Um, How about this? And I would love to see an honest show of hands. So uh, how many of you think preachers and pastors and churches really shouldn't talk about the subject of politics in church? Raise your hand if you think that. All right. We got a few people. All right. Very good. Um, And you're still here. That's great. That's amazing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about it today. And here's going to be my simple challenge. Just really simple. During this election season, what's remaining of it, and then what might happen after the election, which who knows the way this thing is going. Here's here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Put the gospel before your politics. Real simple. My challenge to you is this, that you would view this election through the lens of the goodness and the good news of God. That you would view it through that lens. That's been my prayer for all of you. What would happen if all of us, um, and you know, if, if, if all of us, let me just kind of put it this way, if all of us filtered our politics through our faith rather than filtering our faith through our politics, what would happen? You know, what would happen if all of us, as Christians said, I'm a Christian first and I'm a Republican second. I'm a Christian first and I'm a Democrat second. What would happen if we said, I'm a Christian first and I'm an independent or libertarian second? What would happen? Church, it would be a game changer is what it would happen. And see, here's the reality that I don't want you to miss, and I almost don't even need to say this, but the reality is this, that when, when you know, when you die, you're not going to go to Washington D.C. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, I mean, doesn't, I mean, you, you, doesn't the deathbed make your politics completely irrelevant? You know, I remember my mom was very politically opinionated. I got most of my political opinions from her. So, uh, but she was very opinionated. She had an opinion about everything and everybody related to politics. And so, when she died a few years ago, I was at her deathbed, and she never once said, "Scott, would you please read me some passages from the Constitution?" She never once said that. Never once. Because, you know, it doesn't really matter at that point, right? It's irrelevant to the conversation because there's certain things that transcend politics and those things are more important. And that's what we need to get a handle of in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, now you need to listen to me. This election is important and this election will have significant consequences. Okay? So, you know, don't misunderstand me. But at the, But on November 9th, Lord willing, when you wake up, Jesus will still be on the throne regardless of what's going on in the United States of America. He'll still be on the throne. And so here's what this series is all about. This this series called Counterculture is all about, you know, just in a nutshell. I want to challenge you to live your faith with courage, conviction, and compassion, but to live it with a kingdom perspective. That's my challenge to you. You know, that you would be so aware of the coming kingdom of God that your heart is filled with joy regardless of the circumstances going, around, going on politically. That your heart would be, you're so aware of, what, of the, the coming kingdom of God that your heart is filled with purpose and energy and passion as you wake up every day because of what you know is coming in the future. That's, that's the challenge. That we would understand church that living with a kingdom perspective means living light in the reality that one day Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on the earth and he will put all of his enemies underneath his feet that the bible says that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool and of his government there shall be no end that you would live with such a mindset about that that you're good on November 9th you're good you're joyful, that you would realize in your mind and in your heart that what the scripture teaches is that Jesus came first as a servant, but one day he's coming as king. And that one day he's going to be setting up his kingdom on this earth for a literal reign in the new heaven and new earth. He's going to be our king. And what's interesting about the present election is this. That the, the candidates that most of us will be casting a ballot for, you know, those, ca- those candidates are flawed. And we, it makes us long for, I mean, we just kind of wish we had a new set. It's like, can we just start over? Can we just back up a bit and, and do a mulligan on this, all right? So then we get two more candidates that are maybe a little bit less flawed. That's what we all want. But I would call your attention to what this has really stirred within us is a desire to be ruled by a perfect and loving king. That's what we really want. That's what our hearts are crying out for, is to be ruled and to be part of a government where justice and love and grace and truth rule the day. Isn't that what you long for? Isn't that what you want? And the, the, what the Bible teaches is that, that day is coming. That day is coming just as sure as you know anything you can you can bet, bet the, you know, your life on. And so what this really means is for the church, and this is what I think we've really missed, is that we've gotten so wrapped up in politics that we've gotten our eyes off the coming kingdom of God. We've gotten so wrapped up in the political process, which is going to be just as broken after election day, by the way. There's going to be still gridlock, right? So let me just save you the frustration and just encourage you to focus your eyes on the coming kingdom because because here's what we've missed. The church is supposed to be really an enclave of the coming kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God has already come to the earth. It's now, but it's also not yet. It's kind of like after the Allied forces landed on D-Day, you know, on the, on the shores of Normandy. Basically, when they landed, the war was over, but they still had to fight the battles. Okay, can I tell you something, dear Christian? The war is over, but we got some battles we still got to fight. And Jesus has won the battle. And what the church is supposed to be is a model of the coming kingdom, the coming reign of Jesus, so that when outside people look inside, they're like, dang, what's going on there? You're like, oh, this is just the reign of Jesus. We're modeling it to the world. What love, truth, and justice looks like should be right here in this room. All right, so we're not perfect, but we're getting there. God's taking us there. And so that's what the coming kingdom of God is all about. So what that means is that everything that you and I do matters. Everything. Your job matters. You're a school teacher. You're a stay-at-home dad. You're a baker. You know, you're know. you a butcher. You're a candlestick maker. I don't, I don't know what it is you do, but it matters. Why? Because everything that we're, we, we're called to do now is prepping us for life in the coming kingdom of God. You know that your marriage matters. That's why you need to guard and protect your marriage because your marriage is a symbol of the coming kingdom of God. Your parenting matters. Your discipling of little ones matters. So that's it matters because all of that is prepping us for the coming kingdom of God. Your generosity to the church, your service to the kingdom, you know, you're sharing the gospel, you getting, you know, a rational, you know, Uh, defense for your faith down, all of that matters because all of that is preparing you for life in the kingdom. Every single day of your life matters. And so uh, it is preparing us for the kingdom. Jesus says, if you've been faithful with the little that I have given you, I will give you much. Now you just think about that. And so one day God is gonna keep his promise and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and it's going to be just as real as rain, okay? And so now, here's the thing, we gotta kinda transition to this. If we're gonna live counterculturally, and counter, living counterculturally is just living with a kingdom mindset. Most people live, they're focused on the earthly kingdom, you know what I mean? And all the frustrations with that. But what I'm asking you to do is lift your eyes above that and see the coming kingdom. And so to live counterculturally, we need to understand the culture that we're currently living in. We kind of need to know which way the winds are blowing right now. And we need to know the ideas that are fueling the revolution that is really taking place in our culture. We need to be able to discern those. And what I mean by that is there is a moral revolution taking place in our country. It's, It's happened really over the last seven to eight years. And it all has to do, it's all focused on sexuality. That's really the root of it. And so we're seeing um, the fruit of it over the last few years. But really, the seeds were planted back in the 60s. And now they're, they're popping up through the ground. So it really shouldn't be surprising. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. But there is a moral revolution just in the last, just in the last few years. Um, you know, basically, um, we have redefined marriage in this country. Just in the last three or four years, we've completely redefined it. And every, every candidate for uh, gay marriage about eight years ago used to be against it. So there's been a revolution. Not only that, but in the last two years, we're seeing gender being completely redefined. And basically, um, you know, the, the, the transgender, you know, revolution that's, that's taking place the, the, the core idea of it is this, that what you were, the gender you were born with physiologically is not your gender. Your gender is whatever you feel it to be on any given day. That's the idea behind it. And so this is a part of this Sexual revolution that's that's occurring. And so what what the culture has done is they've taken sex and sexuality and they have lifted it to an idolatrous position. When God says, it's really a gift that I've given you, but it's not God. It's a gift, but don't worship it. And our culture is worshiping it. Now here's the other, this is the and this is part of the Revolution that is really, that we're really feeling. And that is this that tied to this moral revolution is, you know, just a radical intolerance and a demonization of anybody that disagrees with the, revol- with the revolution. So, what is being preached is tolerance, and, and, and yet, if you disagree with the revolution, the message is we can't tolerate you anymore. And that's what's being said. And so this is just kind of, I'm not exaggerating this. I'm not blowing this out of proportion. I'm just communicating to you reality. I think if we're going to live with a kingdom perspective, we have to be realistic about where we are. Let me give you some examples. These come from the American Center for Law and Justice website. So I just spent five minutes on the website and I pulled, I had to I had to trim the list down because there were just so many. But I just want to talk to you what's happening is our religious freedoms are being curtailed in this country. And it's happening right in front of our very eyes. Uh, Let me give you some examples. In New Jersey, New Jersey officials revoked part of a church's tax-exempt status because they found it guilty of discrimination because the church refused to rent a part of its facilities for a same-sex marriage ceremony. So they said to that church, you can't be tax-exempt anymore because you discriminate. Nurses in state-funded hospitals around the nation have been threatened with termination for refusing to participate in abortion procedures on religious and moral grounds. There's a postgraduate counseling student in in a state university in Michigan who was expelled from the program for asking. She just asked a question if she could refer a homosexual client to another counselor. She cited her Christian beliefs as the reason for the referral, and they expelled her. A federal judge threatened all participants at a Texas high school graduation ceremony, including the school's valedictorian, with jail time if there was a prayer offered by anyone at the ceremony, a judge is like, We're gonna lock you up. We're gonna lock you up for praying. All right, so, so that's happening. It, what's interesting is that this Christian discrimination is occurring on college campuses and it's becoming the norm, but you'll never hear about it in the media. Listen to this Audrey Jarvis, who's a student at Sonoma State University in California, she was asked by a university administrator to remove her cross necklace during orientation because it potentially could offend others. In Florida, at Polk State College, a professor gave a student zeros on several assignments because the student refused to agree with the professor's anti-Christian bias. The professor stated in the syllabus that all religions come from the same source, human imagination, And so this student wouldn't agree with that. And she paid the price in her GPA. You probably heard about this student at Florida Atlantic University. This student in class was reportedly ordered to write the name of Jesus on a sheet of paper and then stomp on it. Now, church, I could have gone on and on and on and on. I had like 10 others, examples of this that are just, you know, happening. Um, But the thing is, the thing I want you to see is things have really changed. The winds are blowing in a different direction. And it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite movies, The Wizard of Oz. You guys remember Dorothy and what she says to little Toto? She says, Toto, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. And that's the reality here. We are no longer in Kansas. I think that we find ourselves as Christ followers in an increasingly antagonistic, pluralistic, secular culture. That's the reality. And I think the question is, is how can we live with courage and conviction and compassion when, when we're faced with this more and more in our society? In fact, I would make the case, church, that we are becoming as Christians more and more of a minority, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I really don't. I don't think it's a bad thing at all because I think it's going to make us decide what's more important, our faith or our comfort. And I think that's going to be a very healthy exercise for people that attend church regularly in this culture. Now, I ask the question, is there a place where the scripture talks about what it means to live as a minority? Is there a place in the scripture that really just unpacks what it means to live as a God follower in the midst of a culture that's just really antagonistic and hostile? And the answer is yes. It is Daniel chapter one. Would you turn to Daniel chapter one? Because I want to use, I want to speak to him, speak about him, and just uh, how he models for us what it means to put good news before politics, for what it means to live as a minority. He shows to us an example of what it means to live as a minority. And I want to just focus on those three things. Now, Daniel chapter one, let me just, let me set it up for you. Um, you know that in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, you know that they lived in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, or they lived in Babylon. Okay, so they had basically two locations. And so um, as you think about this election season, as you think about our candidates, as you think about the discourse, as you think about, you know, uh, how this election process has transpired and what people are saying, you know, when you think about it, who does our culture resemble the most, Jerusalem or Babylon? All right, think about that. Let me set up Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, there's no question about it, there was consensus that there was one true God. There was, in Jerusalem, um, you know, the temple, the worship of God was the center of the nation's life. And so the worship of God and the law of God were core to everything that happened in their nation. I mean, there's, you know, the thought of separation of church and state is just not, I mean, it's the farthest thing from their mind. You know, the state is their relationship with God, basically. So so that's Jerusalem, all right? But what about Babylon? Babylon was a completely different picture. You want to talk about polytheistic? You want to talk about many gods? You want to talk about idols? You want to talk about a melting pot of religions and ideas and customs and practices? Do you want to talk about there was no consensus on sexuality at all? The phrase was, in Babylon, anything goes when it comes to sexuality. Anything goes. So as much as things change, they really stay the same, don't they? So my question is, where do you live? Do you live in Jerusalem right now or do you live in Babylon? What do you think? Somebody said Bargersville. I'm not, that's not where I'm, that's, no, you're you're not following me here a little bit. All right. I would submit to you that we are living in Babylon today. And I would say to you that there are some of you in this room that you are longing for a return to Christian America. And that is a return we are not going to see. Okay, I think the problem in the church is we have, been, we have been longing for a return back to Christian America, and I just don't think that's where we're going. I think the reality is this, that God wants us forward-thinking and forward-looking, anticipating and excited about the coming kingdom of God. We don't need to mourn the past as much as we need to anticipate and work towards the coming of the kingdom in the future. Does that make sense? And that's that's at the heart of this. That's what I believe Daniel does. That's how he was able to live in this Babylonian culture with joy because he anticipated the kingdom. Let me show you in three ways. Number one, would you write this down? Living in Babylon means this, that God's people do not despair. Living in Babylon means this, that God's people do not despair. Now, some of you are like, what do you mean by that? Regardless of what happens on November 8th, we have no reason to be gloomy. We have no reason to be discouraged. We have no reason to be down on November 9th. You know why? Because of the coming of the kingdom. Because we know that God is sovereign. Because we know that God is in control. And so we don't need to be negative Nellies. We don't need to be acting like, you know, our whole life really hangs in the balance on this election because it really doesn't. God is sovereign and God is in control. And we as God's people do not need to despair because we know of the coming kingdom of God that God is bringing. Let me give you a little bit of background to this. And um, let me set it up this way. So when you're thinking about the book of Daniel, uh, it happened in a time and a place. And let me tell you about the time and the place. It's right around 600 years before that first Christi- Christmas. So 600 years before Christ was born. And uh, long gone are the days of you know David and Solomon and Saul and the, kind of the heyday of Israel. That has long been gone. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar is ruling most of the known world in the Babylonian Empire at this time. And he takes couple hundred thousand soldiers, and he has surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and he waylays it. He breaks down the gates, he breaks down the walls, and he rapes and loots and pillages the city of Jerusalem. God's people are inside, and they just can't believe this is happening. And so over the course of three different waves, he exiles the Jews from Jerusalem and he sends them to Babylon. They want to eradicate the Jewish culture. They want to eradicate the Jewish country. And the way that you do this is you assimilate the best and the brightest of the Jews who survived and, um, and you assimilate them right into your culture and you send them back to live in a foreign land um, and to begin that indoctrination process into the Babylonian way of life. And so that's exactly what has happened. And that is where Daniel is. He is in Babylon and he is serving the king because he was one of the Jews who was exiled. Now, here's the question. Don't you think that it was hard for the Jewish people when all of this was going down? Don't you think it was hard for them to believe that God was still on the throne when all of this was happening? Don't you think it was hard for them to really just feel like, man, you know, God's with us? You know, of course it was hard for them to believe that. I mean, as they're being carried off in the hands of God, it was—I mean, in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, it was really hard to believe they were still in the hands of God. But what I'm, what I want to communicate to you is that we have no reason to despair. I mean, I mean, just let me let me show you some of the depth of their grief. Okay. I mean, what's happened here is the end of their way of life as they knew it. I mean, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to t- completely destroy the temple. And God allowed you know, Nebuchadnezzar to send his men into the temple to loot it. Of all of its you know, valuables and all. The Ark of the Covenant is in the temple. And you know, the word of God to the people of God was don't touch with your hands the Ark of the Covenant or you will die. Well, Nebuchadnezzar and his guys walked in there, they carried the thing out, nobody died. So, so for them, they're thinking, man, where are you, God? Let me show you, keep, your, keep it uh, Daniel 1, but let me just show you Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, the psalmist says, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. When we remember Jerusalem, we just wept. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing with all of this bad stuff happening? And it could be that some of you are, you know, are discouraged about where we are as a culture. And, you know, there, there is a place for grieving the revolution and kind of what has happened in our culture. You know, we, you know, we look at the political divide in our nation and we have real problems that need to be solved, but we're so divided. We look at, you know, the, you know, marriage breaking down in our culture and families breaking down in our society and it grieves your heart. You know, you look at the reality that one out of every five babies born in the state of Indiana are born addicted to drugs. Can you believe that? And it's right to grieve that. You know, you you look at the political and uh, corruption, the scandal, the the deception that just characterizes Washington every single day. And, you know, there's a place for grieving for that. And some of you on November 9th might be really sad about the outcome of the election. And, and I'm not saying it's, it's, it's wrong to kind of you know, grieve that. But what I am saying is, church, that we have no reason to despair because Jesus is still on the throne. That's really what I'm trying to say. And so God's people don't have, you know, regardless of what happens, you know, when we wake up on November 9th, regardless of who wins, God is sovereign and God is in control. Let me show you this right from the book of Daniel chapter 1. Let me read to you just the first two verses. And just give you a little bit of perspective on this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he was the king of Israel at that time, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now notice verse 2. I want you to just notice the wording here. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was the Lord that allowed Israel to fall into the hands of the Babylonians. It was the Lord that allowed them to be sent into exile. In other words, God's people do not despair even when things look gloomy and bleak. Why? Because God is in control and he's still on the throne. And for whatever reason, he has allowed this transformation to take place in our society and culture. And I believe that God has put you here and me here for such a time as this. I think God has allowed this decline, and I think you and I are here for his purposes. And I think our vision and our perspective and our prayers need to be not on where we used to be in the past, but where God is taking us in the future. And God, what is your role for me here and now? That's where our focus needs to be, because we know that God is, we know that God is sovereign. Now, here, 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 please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't go vote you need to vote um people died so that you can vote you may not like the candidates the candidates may not be worthy of your vote but the people that sacrificed so that you could are worthy of your vote so you need to vote all right i'm not saying you don't need to have a political opinion you need to have a political opinion right if you want to yell at your tv go right ahead and yell at your tv you know it's okay i'm not saying that i'm not saying don't be engaged in politics I think as Christians, we need to seek the welfare of the city and the state, right? We need to seek that because that is a means of common grace that everyone benefits from. So you and I need to be engaged. What I am saying is this, that that your relationship with God and your relationship with other people transcends politics because your relationship with God and your relationship with other people are the only things that are going to last forever. That's what I'm saying. In other words... What our country needs, the government can't give it. What our country needs, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton can't give it. What our country needs, the church of Jesus Christ can give it. In other words, we are, we are the answer. And so living in Babylon means that we, are, we do not despair, that we live in joy. Here's the second thing that living in Babylon means, and I think we learned this from Daniel, is that God's people are to be in the culture, but we are not to be of the culture. Okay. We are to be in the culture and we are not to be of the culture. Daniel lived right in the middle, in the center of the the power city of the world, right in Babylon. He was right there in the middle of it. Now, follow me on this. There, you have real, you have a couple of different options when it comes to the culture around us. Okay. The first thing you can do is compromise. Okay. Um, you can compromise. And what I mean by that is, you know, when in, Rome, when in Rome, do what the Romans do, right? To get along, go along, just compromise, give yourself, absorb yourself into the culture. Um, you know, we're living in Babylon now, and so um, in Babylon, there's more drugs, sex, and rock and roll than there is in Jerusalem, so let's just have fun and party it up, okay? You can do that. You can compromise. Or you can withdraw you could separate you could circle the wagons and not get stained by the world okay you could do that which one did the amish choose historically which one has the church of jesus christ in america chose i'm going to let that question hang can i offer a third way Instead of compromising and instead of withdrawing what I would submit to you, let's enter into the culture and seek to renew and restore it. Let's be ambassadors for the coming king and prepare for his arrival. Let's do that. One of the things that you notice is the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. The reason why we can enter into the culture and renew and restore it is because of this. What's in us is so much more powerful and so much more satisfying than anything the culture can offer to us. And so we're empowered to enter into the culture to renew and to change it and to bring life and light and joy to it, to work to that end. Why? Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we're not alert. It doesn't mean we're not cautious. Of course, we're alert and cautious because we're sinners. But the reality is, is we, we've been invited to join God's work in, in building and in sprouting this kingdom on the earth. He's invited us to join him in this. And God has given us an ability to be part of that work. What you see in Daniel chapter 1 is Daniel goes to school And he learns the ways of the Chaldeans. He learns the ways of the Babylonians. What you see is Daniel has a job basically working for Nebuchadnezzar. He works his way all the way up in the administration because he's so gifted. And not only that, but Daniel, which is a Jewish name, has been given a Babylonian name, Belshazzar. So what you see is you see Daniel entering into this antagonistic secular culture, but he's living his faith. He's living out his relationship with God. Does that make sense? And that's what you see in Daniel chapter 1. Now, um, let me just kind of throw this out to you. You guys remember, y'all remember the verse uh, when we we've used, used to use it a lot, but there's a verse in Jeremiah 29, and it goes like this, and you probably have it on your wall or your screensaver or something. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. You guys remember that? It's Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, we always get the verse, but we never get what goes before it. You want to hear what goes before it? God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah and giving the people a message. The, the people that he's speaking to are living in Babylon that verse is aimed toward the people living in Babylon. And what it says prior to that is, I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want you to get jobs. I want you to establish businesses and plant gardens. I want you to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon because when you seek the welfare and the good of others, then that ends up being a blessing for you. And then he says this, for I know the plans I have for you in Babylon, plans to prosper you in Babylon, plans to give you hope and a future in Babylon. Could it be that that's the message he has for us in post-Christian America? Don't wait for the cavalry to come and rescue us. No, you know, build families, plant gardens, establish yourself, enter into the culture and seek the good of the city. I think that is exactly what God is telling us. You know, the apostle Paul understood this. You know, on his missionary journeys, he he talks about how he went to Athens and he enters in the city of Athens, Greece. And it's a, you guys, it's a pagan city, let me tell you. Okay, it looks, it makes Las Vegas look like a Sunday school class, all right? That's how pay. I mean, he walked in the city and all he saw were statues, most of which were pornographic statues to all these different gods. So Paul walks in, he goes to the area where all the intellectuals are debating ideas, and he enters right into it. And you know what he says? He looks at those fellows and he says, if you guys don't turn, you're going to burn. He doesn't say that. I'm just kidding. No, he doesn't say that. You can laugh, all right? Now you know what he says? He doesn't go with that approach. That's not Paul. What he says is this. I've noticed you guys are really religious. I've noticed statues everywhere. When I walked in, he says, I noticed a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about the God that you say is unknown. His name is Jesus. And he started sharing with them. And what he did is he established common ground and he started sharing the gospel with them. I think what it means for you and I to enter into this culture is to do the very same thing. To establish common ground and share good news. You know, what this could look like, it could, it could look like, you know, engaging the culture can look, take on so many different forms. For some of us, it means you need to run for public office. You need to run for governor. I would vote for you. You need to run for mayor. You know, run for dog catcher. I don't care. I mean, you know, do that. But as Christians, engaging the culture, being in our culture means we need to seek out public office. And I think part of the problem is the reason why we're not really excited about candidates is because, you know, candidates that, people are, candidates that have integrity and looking for truth and they're looking to bless the city, they're not running for office anymore. And maybe what we need to do is just run for office. Another thing that we can do to engage the culture is just serve the poor. You know, just make a difference and serve the needy and the homeless and, and those that need medical care and those that need, you know, clothing on their back. You know, maybe what we need to do is, is just enter in and start serving. And certainly, what, you know, we can't do that for everybody, but what we can't do for all, we can do for one, right? Because, because what we do for one matters because it's preparing for the coming kingdom, Right? So, so again, I bring us back to your service matters. Your faith matters. Your perspective matters because everything you do is preparing for the coming kingdom. And yes, you, you've, you've blessed one person and by blessing that one person, you've changed the world. Can't do it for everybody, but you can do it for one. I think, you know, I think another thing we can do as a, you know, as a church or as Christians is just work to end abortion. You, know, you can volunteer at Karenette Pregnancy Center you know, you can pray, you can use your gift of persuasion, use your gift of counseling to love, to love women that find themselves in the crisis of an unplanned pregnancy. You know, you can share the gospel with your next door neighbor, have them over for dinner. There's all kinds of ways. I just think what I'm trying to say, church, is let's don't go in the closet and close the door and pray for Jesus to come. Let's go build the kingdom and usher his kingdom in. Let's do that. And so that's what Daniel does. Daniel climbs all the way up. Do you guys know, if you read the rest of the story, Daniel outlives Nebuchadnezzar, his position. He becomes one of the most powerful men in the Babylonian empire. Then, then that, that empire falls. And then you know, the Persians make it to town and he's, he's still around. So let's do the same thing. You guys getting this? All right, here's the last one. I got to end with this. I think God's people not only do they not despair? And, and, and not only do they, they enter in the culture, but they're not of the culture. But here's, here's the best one. God's people rejoice in the coming kingdom. If you turn over to Daniel chapter two, just one chapter over, it talks about, it mentions the coming kingdom. Look at verse 44. And in, those, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. He is talking about literally, he is literally talking about the coming kingdom of God. Do you know what I think our problem is? I don't think we just look forward enough to heaven. I don't think we are excited enough about the coming kingdom of God, the new heaven and new earth. I really don't. I think for a lot of us, the image of heaven, the new heaven and new earth has been shaped more by Hollywood than than really by scripture. And I think that our perspective is that we're gonna look like angels and we're gonna be these effervescent, esoteric kind of spiritual beings floating around on the clouds, strumming a harp and eating grapes, that's our view of heaven. It's kind of like the high school class reunion that goes on for all of eternity. That's, that's kind of how we view it, right? And I just, you guys, I just cringe when I hear people say, well, you know, I really want to go skydiving. That's a part of my bucket list. So I really want to get that in before I kick the bucket. Or I want to go climb, you know, Mount Everest. Or I really want to go to the Rocky Mountains, you know, before I die. It's part of my bucket list. And the reason why it makes me cringe is because the assumption behind that is you only live once. Like, if you're going to live life, you better get it in, in these 70 to 80 years. Because after that, you're going to be strumming a harp, eating grapes, floating on a cloud. Does that sound like heaven to me? No. It sounds like hell. That's what it sounds like right? Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with those things, but we're making an incorrect assumption that we got to live life before we die because there ain't no life after we die. You got, listen church, you got 70 quadrillion trillion years to plan out your bucket list. And then after that, you're just getting started. That what we have in front of us is mission and adventure. That's what's coming in the new heaven and new earth. You don't believe me? Let me show you. Can I show you just three scriptures real fast? Look at Luke 12, 32. I tried to pick ones that you may not be familiar with. Um, He talks about the coming kingdom. Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, he's talking about getting saved. No, no, what he's talking about is the kingdom, like the reign of God on the earth, the new heaven and new earth. Look at 2 Timothy 2.11. This saying is trustworthy for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. There's scripture after scripture that talks about as children of God, we will reign with Jesus. We will rule with Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. Some of you are going to be governors in the new heaven and new earth. Some of you are going to be mayors in the new heaven and new earth. Did you realize that? Like, I don't know the implications of all that. I just know what the Scripture teaches. Look at Isaiah. Look at this prophecy. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Why don't you go try that one today? You know what I mean? No, we don't want to try that because the world's fallen. The world's broken. But one day he's going to lift the curse, right? And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy any in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the coming kingdom where Jesus lifts the curse. He does away with sin. You know, Satan and all of his demons are gone and his children are left there to play. A place where there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more cancer, no more hair loss, no more unemployment, no more any of that stuff. It's over. And so one day, God will take away everything hard in your life and he's gonna give everything to you good. And don't you love the fact that Jesus Christ himself lived a counterculture. He didn't hide on his throne in heaven. He entered this dark and sinful world and lived the life that he's calling us to live. And he gave his life so that you and I could have the kingdom of God. Isn't that great news? Isn't that awesome? that's where he's taking us. And so you have every reason to be joyful and to be at peace today. Let's pray together. Lord God, I know the messenger is not perfect, but the gospel message is. So Lord, I just ask that you would encourage us, God, that you would just help us to see that There are more with us than against us. You would help us to see that greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. That you would help us to see what can't be seen, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. The things that God has in store for them that love him. God, help us to live with that hope and that encouragement. We thank you. Give us grace to live with courage and conviction and compassion every day. And all of God's people said, Amen.